Scishow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Hello, and welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive knowledge showcase starring some of the geniuses that make the YouTube series SciShow happen. But this week, it is a completely non-competitive viewer mail showcase, wherein those self-same geniuses answer your burning questions without Hank. Because he's, I don't know what he's doing. He's just not here. I didn't think about the non-competitive side of this, so we're not getting any points today. No points. Nobody's getting any points today. The listener, they're getting the points in in a way. The points that are us paying attention to them. (laughs) This week, as always, we're joined by Stefan Chin. And I sourced some viewer questions specifically for the two of you. Oh my gosh. So here, instead of Hank asking completely inane questions, (laughs) here's what the people really want to know. So Stefan, at Valerie2776 asks, could Stefan talk about bulk buys? Just in general? I suppose you could just answer this either yes or no, or, I, or however you want to take it. I, in general, I'm in favor of bulk buys, but I have a hard time with milk because I don't use a lot of milk. I use like half sure. a cup of milk in a recipe, and then I'm like, I'm not going to drink any of the rest of this because I don't like milk separate from other things. Like, uh-huh. I barely tolerate it with cereal. It, But it feels like like 
if you buy the small milk, it's like $3. And if you buy the gigantic milk, it's $4. So it feels terrible to buy the small mm-hmm. milk, but I know I'm not going to use the big milk. So even in bulk buy, life is hard. So this is the current bulk buy problem that yeah. you're trying to noodle through? Yeah. Okay. You could buy a cow. The other <laughs> opportunity is you buy a gallon of milk, drink half a cup of it, and then drop the rest off at my house. We go through oh, a lot of yeah. milk per week. You never told me about your milk consumption habits. We got to make a spreadsheet. Maybe it could be some kind of chart that would automatically deplete as people were claiming certain amounts of milk. Hell yeah. Oh, this is a good question we were talking about the other day. Sarah, can you freeze milk? And if, if you unthaw it, what happens? I bet if you freeze milk and then you thaw it, it becomes mostly watery. Like the proteins would probably clump up because homogenized milk is basically describing how all the milk proteins are distributed throughout the water. And so like in 1% milk, then it's, that that has to do with the quantity of protein, which is why like 2% milk is creamier because it has more milk protein in there. If you freeze it, I bet it's kind of like freezing soda or something where all the carbon dioxide leaves and the syrup gets concentrated, except instead of uh-huh. syrup getting concentrated, it'll just be like weird milk curds. <laughs> that sounds gr- really disgusting. Yeah. So there you go, Stefan. Okay, you can't so freeze milk. I bulk buy almond milk because it has a longer shelf life. And so as I occasionally want a smoothie or something, I've got a, a delicious liquid I can use for the smoothie. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all there is to say about that. Also joining us is Sari Riley. Sari, your viewer question is from at up Bing King. And Ooh. they ask, what does Sari think about yogurt? Oh, I like yogurt. Why is this the question for you? Do you know? Is this a joke of some sort that I don't get? No, I have okay. no clue why they're asking this. Okay. <laughs> I have never been publicly pro or anti-yogurt, so I'm <laughs> uh-huh. not having to defend any viewpoints. But you're pro-yogurt. I'm pro-yogurt. I'm pro-biotic. Um, <laughs> get <here>. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like my usual yogurt combination is a plain yogurt or maybe a vanilla yogurt with fruit that I add to it, and honey. I do raspberries usually. Yes, yeah. I like raspberries. I like blueberries. Sometimes I eat bananas with it. It like switches up the texture mm. a little bit. Banana does not have the right consistency to be included in yogurt. I That's my hot take. <laughs> you went from being <laughs> such like pro-banana on this podcast to yeah, very... I hate bananas. <laughs> All right. Well, that person knew exactly the right question to ask you <laughs> mm-hmm. to to get an interesting response. Amazing. And it was about yogurt. A lot of people asked you about music, which oh. I think they were just mocking you. <laughs> That's uh, expected. And I'm Sam Schultz and nobody bothered to ask me any questions. No so way. What's your viewer any. question? I didn't ask for any for myself. Oh, oh no. I should have probably. If you guys were good co-hosts, you would have asked for one for me to well, surprise Well, I didn't know me. what was uh-huh. happening. Every week on Tangents, we usually get together and try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts. And we're usually playing for glory, but we're also usually keeping score in the wearing hang books from week to week. But this time, we're going to do something a little bit special, and we're going to take the questions that you guys have asked us on Twitter for the Ask the Science Couch segment and answer a bunch of them that we didn't do during those episodes. So we've each researched a few of them. Sari didn't do all all of the work. She did a lot of the pre-research that maybe I borrowed heavily from. But this one's a little bit of all of us. 
Yeah, we're all the science couch today. Today, we're all the science couch. Only has two cushions. So I'm lounging on the top of the science yeah, couch like a cat. Across the back. Know, like laying on the back. Perfect. Of it. Yeah. Stefan, you go. F- how about you go first? Oh, okay. So my first question is from at Patuna F. Do you really like tuna? That's my question. Do people get the same kind of sugar high slash rushes from the sugar like in apples? This is an interesting question to me, but I am not a chemist, so bear with me as I hand wave some of that. It seems like we mostly chemically synthesize these, and some of them are derived, at least one of them is derived directly from plants. So aspartame is, uh, I think usually in the US we have that, that's the one in the blue packets on, on like your diner table. But aspartame is made using fermentation, which I thought was kind of interesting. So like you have tanks and you have a bunch of bacteria or like two specific kinds of bacteria that poop out the two specific amino acids that you need. That's where you, you isolate those amino acids and then do a bunch of chemistry wizardry on it. And it's just a bunch of sequences of like filtering and purifying and then like reacting it with something else, cooking it a little bit. Then you filter and purify, crystallize, (laughs) filter, purify, crystallize. And then eventually you end up with this final crystallized product that you can crush into the powder that you find in the little blue packets. And then there's sucralose, which is, I think, the yellow packets. And that's what's in Splenda. That is made from regular table sugar. But then you do... You, I don't know. I don't know how the chemistry works. I have to be honest, but they replace, (laughs) (laughs) they replace, uh, several of the hydrogen oxygen groups with chlorine atoms. And then that just happens to result in a thing that is like heat stable. So it works in like baking recipes and stuff. Um, whereas some of these other ones don't, and then you, it tastes sweet and doesn't have any calories, which is, that's, that's kind of the thing with all artificial sweeteners is that you're like, chemically do synthesizing this thing and then it it still tastes sweet but it doesn't get digested by the body anymore so then it has either very low calories or no calories the other one that i looked into was stevia which is the one that's derived from a plant and i didn't realize this but it's actually called it's the like the genus is stevia so it's stevia rabadiana you basically take the leaves steep them in hot water and then like filter out the sweet compound that you're looking for from that water and just concentrate it until you have the the final product. So they're all produced a little differently, but it's basically, to me, it's just a lot of chemistry magic. And then you end up with this delicious, most of them are like way, way sweeter than table sugar, which I think is interesting. Most artificial sweeteners don't really increase your blood glucose levels because you're not metabolizing them or, or the ones that are metabolized are metabolized more slowly than table sugar would be or regular sugar. So you don't get the same blood glucose spikes that you would when you eat like a piece of candy or whatever, that's not using artificial sweetener. But, and this might be another hot take because I know this is a very popular idea in (laughs) amongst the general population, but it seems like the idea that we get a sugar high at all is kind of a myth. There was a study where they split children into two different groups and they said they were giving one group a sugary drink and one group an artificially sweetened drink. And then they had them drink the drink and then they were playing in a room together with their parent. And the parents who thought that their children had drank the sugary drink perceived the kid's behavior as being like 
way more hyper and they were like hovering more closely and being more critical of the kids like hyperactivity and and behavior while playing but there wasn't really any difference between the two it was just their perception of the child's behavior because they were like oh you had a drink now you're off the walls but like kids are just kind (laughs) of hyper in general it seems like especially when you give them a delicious drink or they're playing in a room together um But then there's also been like, there was a meta a meta-analysis of 31 randomized controlled trials in adults. Their finding was that in the hour after eating sugar, that sugar consumption was related to decreased alertness and higher levels of fatigue. And so it doesn't seem like there's actually any kind of sugar rush, that it's just maybe a placebo or that, you know. But there is a sugar crash. I cannot speak to that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> If decreased alertness and higher levels of fatigue is a crash, then <laughs> then yes. That feels like after any sort of eating, though. Like, that's how yeah. I feel. Mm. Decreased alertness, increased fatigue. I ate a sandwich, <laughs> and then I'm in that state. Yeah. So that maybe that's just like you just metabolizing food. something. Now, since I'm the boss, Sarah, you go next. <laughs> so my first question is from two people. At Anna went home and at Vanilla Godzilla. The question is, what's the deal with sneezing basically every single time I walk outside? Mm. I have this. Do you two sneeze when you like go from a dark movie theater into bright light? It's light-based, not allergy-based. That's what they're talking about. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. The photic sneeze. No, this doesn't happen to me. No, I, I don't experience this. This is interesting because statistically we match the overall population. So Ah. it happens anywhere from one-fifth to one-third of the human population might experience photic sneezing, like Stefan said. It's also called the photic sneeze reflex Mm. or ACHU because (laughs) scientists love their acronyms. Autosomal dominant (laughs) compelling heliophthalmic outburst syndrome. Oh boy. Gotta hand it to him. That's a pretty good one. And it's exactly what I've been describing, which is uncontrollable sneezing in response to bright light, especially in a transition from dark to light. We don't know a lot about it. We don't know like comprehensively why it happens or what causes it, but we have narrowed it down a little (laughs) bit. So as far as what causes it, it's a genetic condition. So some genetic conditions are controlled by a single gene, like sickle cell anemia, which is where your red blood cells are sickle-shaped instead of round, and so you have trouble holding oxygen. That's like one gene mutation, and you you can have that disease. But things like eye color take like tens of different genes to form the eye color. So like tweaking one of those genes will change your eye color a little bit, but you need a combination of them. The photic sneeze reflex is one of those that's controlled by multiple different genes. So there's a, like a variety of genetic markers that we can look out for. Think not sponsored, but 23andMe claims that they can tell you whether you will do this based on your mm. genetic makeup. So I don't know, Stefan, you did 23andMe. I think it told me I did not have that and I don't. So yeah. confirmed. The only reason researchers are looking into it is because it could be dangerous if, for example, like I was driving a truck or I was a pilot Mm. and I sneeze while I'm driving because there's bright light. And so it could get dangerous. I have sneezed while I'm driving and it's scary. (laughs) But the closest guess we have to its mechanism is 
nerve activation in your face. So there's a nerve in your face called the trigeminal nerve, also called the fifth cranial nerve. And it's really complicated. And to my understanding, it controls like any sort of itchy feeling on your face or like if you feel sunburnt or if you feel like your lips are chapped or if your nose tickles. And the cranial nerves in your face and head are so intertwined in ways that we don't quite understand that activating one cranial nerve could activate another just by coincidence if they're like hypersensitive for some reason. So (laughs) this could be a case where like light activates your optic nerve really suddenly and then the trigeminal nerve gets triggered and then your nose gets itchy and then you sneeze. So kind of like a chain reaction in some people's faces, but not others. So is your face itchier than other people's faces? I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I feel like my face is fairly itchy. I think I'm pretty aware of if I have a tickle on my head and I need to scratch it. My first question is from Shauna Gecko. And Shauna Gecko asks, does milk really do your bones good or is it actually leaching calcium or not helping at all? That's a good question. I feel like I've heard both. The milk ads really got to me as far as like milk give strong bones, milk mustache. So I think that's why I like milk because I just drank it so much mm. that I can't not like it. Do you it. drink a big glass of milk? Like, will you do that? Yeah. Especially with like cake Ugh. or cookies or anything that feels oh, yeah. like sticky in my mouth. Or That's a special occasion though. You need milk then. I, I Maybe I just eat a lot of desserts. Cake and cookies? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I so drink- like at the end of this recording, would you walk into your kitchen and pour yourself a big glass of milk? And that wouldn't be weird. I would need to eat something with it. I would okay. pour myself a glass of chocolate milk, just Ooh, plain, yeah. and like straight up <laughs> drink that. I don't know. I, I'm one of these people who, <laughs> yeah. when I eat cereal, I pour the milk into the bowl first, and then I pour a little bit of cereal in at a time so that I can Yuck. eat the crispiest... I want moist cereal, but Uh, very crispy. If it has too long to sit in the milk, it's no good. Why don't you just have a bowl of dry cereal and then eat the dry cereal and then take a drink of Mm, milk? You know, I've never tried that. I could also maybe like just put milk in a spray bottle and spray down my bowl of cereal. Just get a little... That would spray bottle would smell (laughs) so That sounds the worst. (laughs) Brother, that's disgusting. I feel like you'd lose too much spraying the bowl of cereal. You need to like take a spoonful and then spray in your mouth. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It really distributes the particles. A mouth mister. So will that help our bones? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so. Well, like you were saying, the gut milk thing, I think must have been like a very strong milk lobby because according to like official sources, you're supposed to drink three glasses of milk a day. Which seems huh. completely over. That's too much. That's more liquid than I drink in a day of any. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might be dehydrated then. But a Harvard paper that I found said that those recommendations were based on like really not very good studies that were too short to actually be able to tell. So I think got milk has a lot to do with this. Uh, and it seems like the idea of milk leaching calcium from your bones comes from like a Swedish study that looked at how much milk people drank in relation to how often they fractured bones and then how early they died. And the results, like, at first blush, look like as milk consumption goes up, the more your risk for fractures goes up and you die earlier. So after one glass, so one glass is fine, but two glasses is, like, (laughs) twice as bad. And then three glasses is, like, 100 times as bad or something according to this study. Is this, like, per day? One glass per day? Yeah. 
<laughs> are you worried about yourself? <laughs> a little bit. I've broken a bone, and neither of you have. Oh. So yeah. who well, knows? No, that's technically true. I broke. How a did pinky. you know that off the top of your head that we never broke a bone? I feel like we've talked about it before. Okay. But according to the British National Health Service, that might have less to do with the actual milk and more to do with the added vitamin A in milk. So it's like fortified with vitamins and minerals. So they weren't sure if in Sweden what the proportions were, but it's possible that there was more vitamin A than vitamin D in the milk and vitamin A leaches bones and makes them thinner. Mm. So if you don't, if you have like more vitamin A than vitamin D, which helps you absorb calcium, then your bones can be really thin. But they also, the NHS also said that the study probably wasn't super thorough because it relied on self-reporting about how much milk everybody was drinking. And it didn't have a lot of other details about their lifestyle, which would help them know how much vitamin D they were getting otherwise. Like if they're eating leafy greens or if they're going outside a lot or if they're just Mm. always inside not getting any vitamin D. So there might be a lot of reasons that their bones were weaker. And that same Harvard paper I talked about earlier said that there are enough other sources of calcium, like leafy green vegetables and just like taking calcium supplements that you're better off just eating other stuff and not drinking milk because milk is so like bad for you relatively in terms of like fat content. And I think even if you're not lactose intolerant, it's still kind of like rough on you a little bit. So in conclusion, I think milk is helping, question mark, <laughs> but it's distinctly possible that if the ratio of vitamin A is wrong, then it either zeroes everything out or it could be hurting your bone mm. density. And you just get all the vitamin A that you need eating regular food anyway. So milk is just like way too complicated to even bother with in my opinion. <laughs> <Just eat> regular <laughs> food. Just eat, a, eat some broccoli and then you'll have your calcium and you'll be fine. Next up, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back to answer more of your questions. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscription services you had, you think you could name them all? And before you just start naming streaming apps, remember that basically everything has a subscription these days. Video games, dating apps, food delivery apps. It's a subscription service world. We're just living in it. And with all of these subscriptions, it can feel like money is just flying out of your account. And that, frankly, sucks. But Rocket Money can help. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money can help you negotiate to lower some bills for you by up to 20%. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in total canceled subscriptions. Escape from the planet of the subscription services and stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. All right, Stephanie, you want to do another one? Oh, I guess so. So another question was from at crystalr99. How do whale ears work underwater? I had some sense of this answer beforehand, but after looking into it, I'm like, this this is still an area of research. We There is a lot of this that we do not know, but whales 
don't have the outer ear structures the way that we do. I think that's partially so that they can be real sleek and not have drag in the water. But they do have ear canals, but they are plugged with like a waxy substance and other debris, and they don't, they apparently don't attach to the eardrum. And so they think these, the ear canals are actually just vestigial and they're not using those to hear. Uh. And so the inner ears in whales work basically the same ways that ours do. There's some differences, but it's overall roughly the same like mechanism. So whales do have some adaptations that help them get the sound to the inner ear in the water without having these outer ear structures. So their inner ear structures are outside of their skulls, which is different from us, and they're down towards the jaw. Also worth pointing out, there's two kinds, there's two broad categories of whales, which are toothed whales and baleen whales. And we know, we know, it seems like we know more about toothed whales. They were able to do, I think, CT scans on dolphins. And they think that the bones of the jaw and the fatty tissues that surround the jaw are conducting the sound. And then there's a bit of fatty tissue that's also connecting the jaw to the ear. And so at least in dolphins, they were, they were able to see that connection. And they've noted that the tissues, like those tissues that were connecting the jaw to the ear were similarly shaped to the outer ears of bats, which seems like a weird, because uh-huh. it's not serving the same purpose. So I don't know why that would actually help in this case, but I don't know. They thought it was important. So I'm mentioning. Do baleen whales work the same way or do we just have no idea how they hear? Like the exact mechanism is, is less well understood, but I think the overall structure is roughly the same. But it does seem like the the structures in a toothed whale are more geared towards capturing higher frequencies, which makes sense because they're the ones that echolocate, versus the baleen whales were more geared towards lower frequencies, which sort of makes sense because they're doing the like long distance whale song type stuff. And there was another thing that I thought was really cool, which is Sound travels way faster in water than on in air, which I actually didn't realize. It's like four and a half times as fast. And so because our heads are so small, it's hard for us to localize sound underwater because if someone's on your right, the sound reaches your right ear enough earlier than it reaches your left ear that you can differentiate that and tell that someone's on your right without seeing them. But underwater, because sound is traveling so much faster and our heads are too small, it's hard for us to to like differentiate between the time when it hits our right and left ear. But because whale heads are huge and because they've sort of moved the ears outside of the skull, they're like as far apart as possible so that they can do this localization underwater better. It's like adapted for the speed of sound underwater, which is kind of cool. Got puny little grape heads. Yeah, yeah, grape heads. All right, we got a lightning round now. <laughs> Sari, do your next one fast. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so my second question is from at Flux Filter. What else physically makes ducks especially equipped for the water? If you gave a pigeon webbed feet, could it technically swim? Hmm. The answer to that, if you gave a pigeon webbed feet... That's a yes from me. Not really. Oh, no. Like, I feel like uh, I feel like you're wrong. Yeah, you're wrong. Uh, so Outvoted. They won't... <laughs> even, like, as they currently are, they won't drown. If you gave them webbed feet, they could paddle mm-hmm. a little bit better, but they don't have the adaptations that waterfowl do to help them stay waterproof, which helps mm-hmm. them stay light and float on top of the water. 
Um, so specifically, ducks and pelicans and osprey and other water birds have something called a uropigial gland, um, which is kind of why it's butt. When you see ducks preening themselves, so like sticking their beaks near their butt and then like rustling it in their feathers, they are spreading oil around, like a waxy oil that is secreted by their body and it fluffs up their feathers and it makes their feathers waterproof. So when they're sitting on top of water, their feathers don't absorb that moisture and get weighed down. So in addition to paddling with their webbed feet, which has co-evolved in a lot of different bird species. So like web feet are important for swimming and aquatic Mm -hmm. birds. Having some sort of waterproofing is maybe even more important. So in addition to like having this coating, feathered animals, specifically animals with downy feathers, can fluff Mm -hmm. themselves up. So sort of like you see birds fluff fluff themselves up in winter. It has to do with the microstructure of their feathers with has mm-hmm. flexible barbs. I think they interlock into sort of a mesh that traps warm air close to the bird's body. And so that, and that can keep them warm, but also it's sort of like, like dumping a balloon onto the water. It can't hurt them as they're swimming along if they have like a tiny bit of air trapped in these waterproof feathers as well. I wish instead of like self-awareness and hands, I have I could just swim around in really cold water. Just like rub yourself in butter and then... Float. Well, moving on to the last question. And it is from at a happy Lee. And they ask, why do vitamin pills frequently have percentages over 100% of the daily intake value? This one seems like pretty cut and dry to me. And Sari already wrote about pretty much all of the research I could find too was from Reddit. (laughs) And uh, it was a person who said that pills aren't a good delivery system for vitamins because you absorb vitamins when your stomach is digesting stuff and pills don't make your stomach digest stuff as much, if at all. So you're not absorbing very much from a pill that you take. So they just have to pump it up with way more so that you actually absorb some appreciable amount of it. So that is fairly straightforward, but also it's probably partially because it just makes the vitamin sound better because it's a big number and we think that that's (laughs) cool is my guess and then I started looking into gummy vitamins because maybe those would kick you into digestion mode and they'd be better that turned out to be a very contentious question because the vitamin community ain't a big fan of gummy (laughs) vitamins it turns out (laughs) uh, because they are really hard to like quality control I guess and when you sample gummy vitamins the amount of stuff in them varies extremely wildly some of them are gummies with like the stuff baked into them but some of them are just gummies that are like dipped in a powder that has the vitamins on it so it can all like fall off a gummy and you're just eating the gummy basically by the end of the day and the gummy technology is just not there to be like both stable enough to last on shelves and good enough to like make every gummy have the same amount of stuff in it. So maybe someday gummy vitamins will be the answer. But until then, we're just doing the best we can with our pills. That's interesting. I never thought about the the gummy vitamin conundrum, but it's true. Gummies are like the wild card of food. They're so (laughs) uncontrollable. They're too fun and chaotic to be a good medicine delivery system. 
And now the show's over because it's past time for us to go to bed. If you like the show and you want to help us out, it's really easy to do that. First, leave us a review wherever you listen. It's super helpful and it helps us know what you think about the show. Second, tweet out your favorite moment from this episode. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell tell people people about us. us. And also let us know what you think about a listener mail episode. Did you like me, Sam and Stefan, just talking about questions? Would you listen to more of them? They're fun to make and we like hanging out. So we might make more if you like this. Thank you for joining us. I've been Sam Schultz. I've been Stefan Chin. And I've been Sari Riley. SciShow Tangents is a co-production of Complexly and the wonderful team at WNYC Studios. It's created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and myself. And I also edit a lot of these episodes along with Hiroko Matsushima. Our social media organizer is Paola Garcia Prieto. Our editorial assistant is Deboki Chakrabarty. Our sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish. And we couldn't make any of this without you asking us questions on Twitter. It's one of the sincere joys of doing the show and I love to read them every week. And also our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. There's an animal in the suborder Feliformia, which is basically the more cat-like carnivores, called Cryptoproca ferox. Crypto meaning hidden, procta meaning anus, and ferox meaning ferocious. Uh, So you can look right below a cat's tail and see a butthole, but this animal and its cousins has flaps of fur-covered skin creating an anal pouch covering the anus and nearby glands. Is there some way we could bring this back? I am sick of looking at my cat's butt. But what's the point? I think it lets them store up secretions so they can like create a smelly thing in this pouch and then turn it inside out and have a scent bomb or something like that. Okay, it's not just because the cat is modest and doesn't want people looking right up his butt (laughs) hole. No, in fact, it's so that they can be even more grimy. Uh.